Absolutely. So and then, yeah, and it's so deep. I mean, mentalism isn't using, there's a real mistake there in the behavioral world. It isn't using mental terms that's mentalistic. You can use behavioral terms mentalistically easily. Okay. So get over that it looks mentalistic because that's bad behavioral thinking. Start looking at function. How can I speak in ways that make a difference scientifically, clinically? Welcome back to Act Root to Fruit. My name is Marcel Tassara. And I'm on a quest to dig up the roots of the contextual behavioral sciences. This is a podcast about getting deeper into the behavioral underpinnings of acceptance and commitment therapy, functional analytic psychotherapy, clinical behavior analysis, all of the, the therapies that fall into the contextual behavioral sciences. My agenda here is is how can us clinicians have a deeper appreciation of function. So what I'm I'm after here is is speaking to some of these luminaries to get some insight and some some guidance on how to be more effective, how to how to intervene and be precise with my interventions. In hopes that you listening uh, follow along with me on this journey. If you've been if you've been following along, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, if you're new, appreciate you too. Uh, feel free to subscribe or like, review. So, um, got someone special here for episode number 26. One of the co-developers of ACT and RFT. One of the main roots of these contextual behavioral sciences, Dr. Steve Hayes. could say a lot, a lot about Steve, who is one of the most cited living psychologist, prolific researcher, um, but I, I'd rather, I think that I'm going to point you towards the Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences. So if you're, if you're listening to this and, and you want to get more into ACT and, and find your community, uh, I uh, recommend you go check out uh, contextualscience.org. That uh, is, a, is a wonderful place to find resources and uh, see this, this gorgeous community across the globe that Steve was instrumental in putting together. Some of the things we cover in, in this episode is how to get more precise around behavioral using behavioral principles, um, RFT, uh, principles of evolutionary science, and, and also the philosophy of science stuff around functional contextualism. It's going to be, this is part one of two with Steve. One of my primary motivations for, for doing this project and this, this podcast is to be helpful uh, just imagining a world where more clinicians are basing their interventions on function and so if your interest is is in getting there and would like to uh, do so in a group setting hit me up um, organizing some training groups to do some experiential work and some didactic work around these uh, these principles of, of, of what I've been getting at here with that Steve Hayes so I'm um, just wondering, how does having an appreciation for the roots of ACT and CBS um, help us work with greater precision, scope, and depth? And I'll yeah. to act, ask that for someone who doesn't know what I'm saying, like, you know, maybe someone newer to ACT, I'm going to ask in a more in a different way. And that is, how does learning about behaviorism help me be a better ACT clinician? Well, it isn't just behaviorism you need to learn about, but yeah, I, I think there's there are four things that I would I would point to. You're going to need behavioral principles. You're going to need RFT. You're going to need evolutionary science, and you're going to need functional contextualism. But you don't need to need it to need it now. You can start with a self-help book. You can start with an experiential exercise. You can start with a uh, a workshop or an online course. You can. Start with meditation. There's lots of places to start. Mm -hmm. But as you get more interested in this phenomena, how to produce it, and the impact it has, and it isn't very long if you're sort of going into an act direction from wherever you are, whether you're a board certified behavior analyst or a counselor or a clinician or a psychiatrist, you know, social worker, OTPT, coach, etc. It isn't very far into it before you begin to see, well, this is interesting. It lands interestingly. Mm -hmm. And you apply it to yourself and, oh, that's interesting. It opens yeah. something up. I can sense it. I can feel it. There's opportunities there. 
not always in a smooth way. You find yourself crying for reasons you don't understand. Or, <laughs> I mean, you've, you've opened the door to some things because mm -hmm. your history is now more accessible to you. Well, when you know the, the principles, when you get to that point, or if you want to and you're a geek and you're like coming in from the principles first, that's even, that's very cool too. In some ways, I like that the best, but it's very rare. Most mm -hmm. people don't come in that way. Well, even even those folks though are fighting against colloquial thinking and yes. mentalistic thinking. Absolutely. So and then yeah, and it's so deep. I mean, mentalism isn't using there's a real mistake there in the behavioral world. It isn't using mental terms that's mentalistic. You can use behavior terms mentalistically easily. Mm. Okay. The very first article ever written on on act was making sense of spirituality in 1984 mm. where i broke with that tradition i said no you know and walked out why because it's bad behaviorism that's why mm. if meaning is use how can you look in the dictionary and say that oh that's a bad word where's the use well, the pages <laughs> are doing something really mm. i mean that, yeah. no that's not behaviorism that's some sort of weird Bible thumping. That's some sort of weird holy book thing. You know, mm -hmm. we don't say mind. Really? <laughs> well, never mind that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you're gonna have a hard time talking. You know, we don't yeah. talk about emotions. Really? I mean, yeah. what do you do when you're crying? What do you and do? And I, I felt that the first time it took Psych 101 and it was a very behavioral, from a sure. very steep to behavioral program. And I just, I was repelled by psychology sure. in general. Of I was, course. Was, was you know, we wonder why are we not accepted by parents of autistic children or speech and hearing therapists and so are we being the, the more behavioral wing? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because we're offensive. We don't know how to make friends. And we're doing something that's inconsistent with our own theory. If meaning is use, use the words that allow you to have the kind of impact you're kind of have. You can have and learn to talk multiple languages. You don't go stomping into China and say, from now on, everybody speaks English. <laughs> what? No, mm -hmm. you learn Chinese, dude. Mm -hmm. So those four. And I can give you a quick little those four behavioral yep, principles yep, yep, are yep. the evolutionary science principles and functional contextualism. Let's click through them. Let's do it. Functional contextualism. You know, if you dig into pragmatism, if you dig into functional contextualism, which kind of cleans up and makes more accessible radical behaviorism, which is a really bad name for what Skinner did because it overturned almost everything that people thought of as behaviorism. That's a very bad idea. Watson says you can't do private events. Skinner says, yes, you can. Mm -hmm. I mean, why would you call that a radical? Radical sounds like extreme. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't you think it's extreme Watsonian? Is it? Of course you would. Yeah. No, yeah. it's 180 degrees wrong. It's, yeah. Bad yeah. idea. But okay, so some of it's labeling, but some of it's cleaning up and being more precise. Uh, so the, the offensive things you remove instead of prediction, control, prediction, influence some precise we don't just want to influence we want a precision scope and depth science wants that it isn't just the goals of science it's my goals mm -hmm. own it don't be a bully skinner don't be telling people what their goals are for scientists if they don't have those goals they're going to think why talk to you i mean mm -hmm. it's so invalidating and arrogant frankly yeah but okay i don't mean to be criticizing a dead guy who's especially my hero but now here's this little piece that's what would you have what would you if you could rename it what would you name radical behaviorism functional contextualism and we okay. clean it up okay and so the contextualism ties you to the pragmatism and then we cleaned up a few things but here's the one that's really important at a core it leads to a little louder conversation so i'll have to keep it trimmed if we want to even do all those four in the time that we've got but over and over skinner when he's pushed into the corner about ontology, about existence, mm -hmm. backs away and goes to utility. So he says, it's not that there is no mind or that you can't introspect, it's that it gets in the way of more important things. Mm. Why would he say that? Why did you, I need you to say, there is no freaking mind. <laughs> <laughs> or I don't know. Or I don't know, yeah. Would, no, no, he, he actually says, it's not that. In other words, I'm not fighting over that. Well, it's because he applied behavioral principles to himself. 
that was what was radical. The first place he does that is the first article where he says that's radical, meaning to the root. Mm -hmm. We're going to take those principles out there. We're going to apply them to ourselves, even in our own science. When you do that, then you start thinking about, oh, it's not objective subjective. It's how tight the contingencies are over my behavior as a scientist. What an interesting idea. Well, then that means my scientific ideas aren't whether or not they literally map on the world. It's how useful they are. What a cool idea. Mm -hmm. Based on what? Based on what I'm trying to do, on your goals. So now I used to be when I would go through this rant, I would walk through all these Skinner quotes and show them multiple times over and over again. And then I explain why. I now have some allies. Like there's a book by Donald Hoffman, who's a really good evolutionist called The Case Against Reality. And here's the basic thing, I can do it very quickly. You know, the thing that's inside our normal use of language is that over time we get better and better at describing what's out there and it's all pre-organized into things, parts, mm -hmm. relations, and forces. So if you see a snake, it's because you evolved to see what's really there. Mm -hmm. What he showed is evolution will pick what's workable, not what's literally true almost every single time. Mm -hmm. And the metaphor I use to help understand this is the movie, The Matrix. Suppose reality is like falling green letters. That's gonna be really hard. I mean, you gotta mm -hmm. be, uh, what was his name? Neo? Neo? Yeah. yeah, you got to be able to do that. But you have a common metaphor like this right in front of you right now. We're looking at machines with screens with operating systems. And you know, you know that a file is a little blue rectangular thing, and you dare not drag it down to this thing that looks like a trash can because it may be gone forever. Mm -hmm. Files aren't blue, they're not rectangular, and there is no trash can. If you had to see the strings of ones and zeros involved in that activity, which by the way would be multiple pages long, and by the way, they're not ones and zeros. No, and that's a metaphor. <laughs> okay yeah you would not be able to keep your yeah. book draft from disappearing yeah you need an operating system is that because it's getting closer and closer to real ones and zeros there's no ones and zeros even that's a metaphor so no so what hoffman walks through is you know our sensory system is an illusion we don't know how the one world is organized. Yes, we do gluons and stuff. No, that's just interacting with the world. We know how, we know how to mm -hmm. interact with the world. Yeah. So bottom, come back. Why would that matter? Your biggest fights with your clients are gonna be really over who's right, how they have to think about things, what's true, what's literally the case. You know, whether or not you're teaching people to detect contingencies or something underneath it, almost always is this thing of really like that. Is what? What's, what's really so? Uh -huh. Really like that. Mm -hmm. And that really is there for a reason. It's going to be about what's real. Mm. Yeah, I get we're living in the one world. Skinner said, in the real world, parentheses, or at least the one world, close parentheses. I'll give you the page. <laughs> Why would he know to say that? What a weird thing to say. He's a monist. He's a why would he say the real world parentheses or at least because he gets that evolutionary epistemology does not really allow you to say as he said uh, you know sit on the epicycle of mercury and look back you're in that context your behavior is what knowing is your observations are so let's not fight about really let's just look at what's most effective Oh, an act clinician who knows that, who gets that and gets why it's philosophically important is much more free to use the client's language system to not fight over what's really mm. to orient towards how things work and, and what do you really want. And you move to that odd level of function over literally true. Mm -hmm. That one move will get you probably half of the value of behavioral thinking. Hmm. And, you know, functional analysis is a different, weird kind of analysis. And then you include it with yourself. So I've done a rant here. Sorry for how long it is. But 
functional contextualism is going to be necessary ultimately for you to do act in a non-browbeating bullying it's really mm -hmm. true that you need to learn to be flexible it's really true mm -hmm. you need to be accepting yeah. oh please just shut up <laughs> i've 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 caught myself being a bully with with mindfulness or with presence, you know. Yeah. And, you know, just, or values is an easy one. Yeah. Is that according to your values? I mean, why don't you just be able to do an imitation of a bad, you know, a bad mother imitation or something? I've gone. I'm beating up on mothers, but you know what, what I mean. You get mm -hmm. finger wagging as if mm -hmm. that's something to do with values. Mm -hmm. So that's one behavioral principles. Why? Because it helps orient you towards direct contingencies. Non-human animals, you know, we're also animals. And up until 200,000 to 2.8 million years ago, that was pretty much who we were. Now, we also got what you and I are doing right now, relational offerings, mm -hmm. RFT. Why does that matter? Because for the first time, behaviorists have to deal with behavior-behavior relationships dominantly. Why? Because this act of relating operates back on behavioral principles. It can flip reinforcers to punishers. It can mm -hmm. make classical conditioning work in such a way that what comes after elicits just as well as what comes before. You know, it can just do spooky things that don't make any sense. And so the cognitivists who have said, oh, you know, are right for the wrong reasons, they didn't have a good analysis. But, and not just the cognitivists, you know, the humanists, the, I mean, I was a Maslow fan before I became a Skinner fan. That was the order of my two mm -hmm. big heroes. And, you know, he didn't believe that you could do human science the way the experimental people, parentheses, like the behaviorists were doing it. And it's because of this property that, you know, our human experience and human reality, human interpretations, et cetera, operate on our world so profoundly that we need a science of that. RFT will give you a big chunk of that. And finally, evolutionary science. Real becomes, quick, though, I want to go back, though. You said yeah. two things there that I was wondering if you could sure. just define. One is um, relational operance and the other yeah. is behavior, behavior relations. Yeah. I want to hear well, it from the horse's mouth. <laughs> Relational operants are thinking about the impact of one event on another in terms of a learning history that creates bi-directional and combinatorial sources of influence under arbitrary forms of stimulus control. That's what RFT is. It's basically language is not association, it's relation. There are associative processes inside language because there's that's the principles that were there before we get language. But we spent 300 years trying to make association or direct tendencies work as a way of thinking about language, and nobody succeeded. Hmm. Skinner failed. You can, you know, verbal operants, a la Skinner, will take you to a mental age of three and then it stops. Yeah. Well, that's not what you and I are doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that one, when I'm dead and buried, if people appreciate the history of my own work, and they may not, they may not care. I would say that one insight that relational operants relating is how language works was the most important thing that has ever occurred to me. It happened in a magical week when I learned about stimulus equivalence and then working with the late Aaron Brownstein, one of the best behavior analysts who ever lived, came up with this very simple idea. It's an operant. But I was used to thinking about operants at this kind of meta level because of my background and radical behaviors in the philosophy of science mm -hmm. and people like that. Not worth doing a deep dive, but yeah. metaphorically, uh, language is more like a picture of a very large family in which everybody's related to everybody else. But you know, some of these people are adopted, some of them are by marriage, there's all different races and ages and and you can't even say what they are until it's been debriefed. I mean, the woman may be married to the woman next to her. The, you know, that young one may be the aunt of the older one. Mm -hmm. you, you can't do it without a relational decoder ring. Mm. But if you can do that, when a new person comes in, you left all you need to be told is this is the second cousin of that person by this lineage, and you now have do the math 
many, 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 many more possible relations that you yeah. can derive. That's nothing like classical conditioning. It's nothing like normal operant conditioning. It's something we had to learn to do. Mm -hmm. And there we do need evolution because we learned to do it, I think, because of the cooperative species that we are. And that initial breakthrough of speaker and listener of, you know, this is called a cup. And therefore, I say cup and you look for it. Mm -hmm. And then just a few months later, we've done this work. We've seen it. Uh, you know, that might happen in 12 months. Just a few months later, if I hold up something you've never seen before and you hear a sound, you'll derive that must go with that. And you'll start calling and naming it. So you mm -hmm. learn same and different and exclusion and you're off to the races of this magical explosion. Same, different, opposite, comparative, before and after and all the rest that are all these different kinds of cousin and uncle of and married to etc metaphorically relations among the complexity i, I love that that metaphor yeah it puts us in a new world if yeah. i can say the, the the new world it puts us in when you do the math on things like that and you realize there's contextual control over the relating and it's bi-directional and combinatorial you take even a relatively small big family gathering and you start calculating how many relations are possible. Uh, and then you think of how many things do you know about that you could relate in how many different ways to how many other things. In the RFT book, I give relations arbitrarily, have people come up with random things. I do this in workshops too. And they always have an answer. If I held up a chapstick and this cup and said, how is this the cause of that? You mm -hmm. could come up with something and mm -hmm. you design for it with this. How is this the cause of that? And I was drinking a lot of coffee, so I invented the chapstick. So, or whatever, I just yeah. Yeah. Well, that means everything is related to everything else in all possible ways. Okay, now do the math of how many things are in your head, how many relations are, how many things are possible. And the answer are things like more than there are molecules in the universe. I mean, you can try to do the math and that's the answer. <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. pretty crazy yeah. that now we're a species that lives, and of course people use language like freedom. And so what a word are you gonna use, dude, for an infinitely large set? So why, back to the question you asked, when you know the basic principle- Oh wait, one more though, behavior-behavior relations. Behavior-behavior relations, because this act of relating alters how this contextually bound acting context operates. So antecedent behavior consequence has one thing, not three things, three-term contingency, right? Okay. Yeah. Plus a motivational state, four-term contingency, mm -hmm. plus a relational operant. Why? Because very subtle things in the current environment can occasion, it's contextually bound, but can engage in an act of relating that will alter even how those contingencies operate and what that behavior means. And so if you're not tracking that, which is hard as hell to do, you can't just ask people, often they don't know. But if you're not learning about that, tracking that, et cetera, then you're hobbling the knowledge you need as to how to deal with this complex system, this dynamical system called a human being, where our capacity for relating changes everything. Mm -hmm. And that, you can, that can happen in a good way. I mean, if you've done any kind of act work, when people get, I'm not going to run from my own emotions anymore. I'm not going to run from my own experience anymore. I talk about this in my TEDx talk your entire world has changed. You've changed hundreds of thousands of relations mm -hmm. in an instant. Yeah. Well, that's because one behavior impacts on all these other behaviors. Okay. And so one of the first places I wrote about this, a lot of this stuff was worked out because I saw this coming, was with me and Aaron Brownstein, the person I mentioned earlier called the mm -hmm. uh, uh, behavior, behavior, uh, mentalism, behavior, behavior relations, mm -hmm. and a behavior analytic view of the purposes yeah, a, of science. It's a classic. A classic. And, and I 
excuse me, but I think if you're a behaviorist, it kind of deserves to be because it walks out. Okay, if a learned operant operates on behavioral processes, how are we going to do that in a way that's not mentalistic? To say, okay, the thought made me do it, that's mentalistic. The emotion made me do it, that's mentalistic. The sense of self made me do it, that's mentalistic. Mm -hmm. My values made me do it, that's mentalistic. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you're imputing cause to a dependent variable, not in a tinker toy way, separate and alone, but in a way that doesn't allow you to do what the purposes of analysis are. So, you know, it's a three-term contingency, all is one mm -hmm. new unit, but you emphasize environment because that's the parts that you can manipulate. You can't manipulate behavior. So the problem with mentalism is what Skinner said. It gets in the way of more important things. You don't know what to change to help people accomplish what they want from you. Mm -hmm. That's really bad. You're getting hired to do a job. If you're gonna do something, you have to do it by changing context. Well, if you're not tracking the context in which this behavior occurs, mm -hmm. like a thought, the context in which this behavior occurs, like overt avoidance, and the context in which that behavior-behavior relation concern con occurs, like social support for reason giving, social support for experiential avoidance, mm -hmm. social support for taking thoughts literally. You won't be able to understand why diffusion has this major impact, values has this major, the work that you're doing mm -hmm. clinically. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking okay. too much in conversing <laughs> too little, but you ask one question and it goes into yeah, yeah I, I, I appreciate it. I, I, I like, uh, feel like I'm sitting by the fire with you. It's, it's great. A question I have about that <laughs> is part of uh, a monistic view is that there is no private and public events. Yeah. Right. Ultimately. How is there's, how no, is there's no fundamentally well, but remember, part of that fully pragmatic view is there is no events. <laughs> Don't forget that part. I, I yeah, that's where the, the, the psychedelic thing comes in, I think, to help us talk about get there. breaking up the behavioral stream as always arbitrary. He has operants that go from you know a thumb twitch to driving to the beach. It drove Skinner and critics absolutely insane because they're looking for some sort of tinker toy version of behaviorism. And what are they getting is this radically pragmatic way of parsing things for analytic purposes. That's weird. And the reason he did it is because he's not gonna grasp on anything, anything as a thing mm -hmm. because he's a radical behaviorist, meaning he's gonna think on observing and talking as behavioral events of scientists. And that doesn't allow you to step on the cycle of mercury and look back at the world it's free from context. So, but back to what you're, we're trying to get to before I did the philosophical thing that said it's actually a non-question. <laughs> uh, restate it and I'll take it seriously. <laughs> you promise this time? I promise. Um, well, so... So, okay, so the, the monist, monist, mon, monistic, monistic? Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. the monistic perspective is that there is no difference between public and private events. And, you know, what, I, what I'm, I've gathered over the course of my six years in this, in this trudge yep. is that the more that I can learn to pull the barrier down of the skin, basically, yes. the freer I am. And I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, how, why is that? What, how does that work? And what do you think about what I just said, basically? Yeah, the barrier of the skin is uh, kind of arbitrary and we do it all the time and in ways that are kind of goofy. I love th this metaphor, kind of a crude one, but I'll come back to your question and you'll see it. You know, like if you eat some food and you swallow it, is it inside you? Well, I don't know, there's a continuous tube that go here to here, that could be outside. Yeah. And if I hold up a tube and look, is that inside or outside? Well, well, they do. They do. Depends. They don't consider that inside of your body. The medical. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. But so, but coming back to this, this when Skinner used that point, which is literally right. You know, the the public-private thing, inside-outside thing, is not a thing. Really, it's not really of importance. 
He then rolled over to say, and furthermore, therefore, the stuff that we can study publicly uh, is what we should use to model the stuff that's hard to, hard to look at that occurs mostly privately and only one person can see, for example. Why? Because they've been shaped to do it by a social community, verbal community that's interested in doing that. I'm down with all of that. Mm-hmm. But I want to add this one little thing, Fred. Equivalence, that's public. What is that? Don't be telling me that he talked about it in relational autoclitics or something. Yeah, but he didn't know about stimulus equivalence. He didn't. How about relational framing? Hmm. And then when you've done that, here's all this public study. How many? Hundreds and hundreds of studies, right? That fundamentally alter how things work. Like, wow, well, B is smaller than A. Now shock people, in, B is bigger than A. Now shock people in the presence of A. And then pop up B and they sweat more than they did to A. Mm-hmm. There's no model of that in classical conditioning. It's not formal, it's not stimulus generalization that could be completely different. It's not contiguity. I can show you if, you, if the other one is, and you know Z is smaller than A, there'll be less arousal. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, my point being, uh, I'm down with the idea of let's model what's going on privately on ba- on what we can access publicly to do more high precision, high scope science. But then I have to say, you know, behavioral forms of cognitive science have dialed in, in the forms of uh, relational operants, rule governed behavior, etc. They've dialed in. The empirical fact, I think I want to say it there is a fact, but remember, I'm a pragmatist, so there's really no facts, literally. <laughs> you know, Skinner said there's no cause. I mean, he did that because he knows it's just a way of speaking. But mm-hmm. I want to say that's as much a fact as anything in our field, and we better wake up to it. You know, if our field is behavior analysis, and I'm usually not talking to just that wing, but I get that you want to talk to the behavioral wing. Well, not no, necessarily. No, I mean, I'm, I'm also talking to folks who are trying to wrap their head around the, and heart around. Well, the cool. And that and that's actually easier there because if you get too much behavioral training, you have to wash some of that out. But yeah, only because it's bad behaviorism, not because you have to not be a behaviorist. Skinner yeah. sometimes did bad behaviorism. Mm. He did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Verbal stimuli are the products of verbal behavior. Nah, you just use stimulus in a non-functional way. You've never done that ever in your whole life. Why would you do that? Because he didn't have a better answer. That's mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm down with modeling what's private based on what's public. But what we know about what's public says there are the relational languages, relational, relational operants alter how other behavioral events operate and when you carry that inside you need ways of speaking about things like attending the present moment or openness to your own emotions or thoughts or you need that i mean not because it's literally what it says it is but because that way of speaking orients you to what's important okay and is part of it to having to do with the value we as clinicians put on the private events over the public events, part of the hindrance there with mentalism. Well, some of that is bad and some of that is good. The part of it that's good is the centrality of cognition and the things that come from it. Cognition parses the behavioral stream. If, you know, you were to, I just, brought a hamburger in and gave it to my son because I knew I was going to be on this podcast. And sure enough, it's now lunchtime, but when we started, it wasn't. So I did that beforehand. Uh, and if, you know, I would ask him, uh, are you hungry? Uh, you want a burger? You know, I, you do things like that because it helps orient you to how to deal effectively with things like motivation, et cetera. And so many of those are dependent upon private events. If you just look at your social discourse, just what you do Mm -hmm. normally, 
in between people. You're going to be talking about emotions, thoughts, memories, sense of self, attention, desires. That's I mean, so we shouldn't get entangled with that and forget that the bottom line is also behavior you can see on the outside, and that that's really important. But we also shouldn't minimize why why it's there. It's because this continuous stream. I mean, the dog or cat doesn't wait, have a way of partitioning out. Do I want that? Am I hungry, etc. From just interacting in with the world, food mm -hmm. deprivation will make them search food. But the dog's not saying, "Hey, I'm hungry." I mean, they behave in ways that will get you to feed them. Mm -hmm. You should see my dog when it gets to be eleven thirty. We <laughs> we feed her at twelve, um, but we have partitioned that stream we've broken it up and we talk about it in these categorical ways of you know memory sensation cognition emotion they're not fundamental mm -hmm. but they're about something so my here's my point to my clinician friends i don't think you can do clinical good clinical work with adults just on the basis of work behavior and direct contingencies. And my best evidence for that is I was a behavior therapist before the cognitive behavior therapy showed up and it failed. Excuse me, it failed. People hated it, they didn't want it. They pushed it out, they passed laws against it. Wake up. And if you think you're gonna go back to that era, you're not. The culture won't let you and good reason. Good reason. I mean, I, God dang it, when that was really catching hold, not it's not their fault. But you know, I was working in the prisons, and hmm. you know, I watched you know prison guards start calling solitary confinement time out. I mean, you can take just direct contingency stuff and just ride over human compassion, feeling, etc. Mm -hmm. I'm not blaming the behaviors for that. I'm just saying we need a language. For how not to do that yeah and it's going to look mentalistic mm. it doesn't have to function mentalistically for mm. you as a scientist so get over that it looks mentalistic because that's bad behavioral thinking start looking at function mm -hmm. how can i speak in ways that make a difference scientifically clinically and mm. having a good language i mean i've got lots of folks who, who are more on the behavioral wing and say thank you for act because it gave me a language to talk to people and they're crying about their autistic kid you know not being able to speak or something mm. and you, you know you can actually get in there and not just say you should go see a social worker nothing against social workers it was probably people but you know yeah that kind of cartoon version was rejected by the culture and we're never going back there. So that I'm for good reason. So I'm and and hence hence why you don't um, talk a lot about radical behaviorism and Cantor and all kinds of philosophical things at boot camps. Because uh, no, not at boot camps, and mostly not ever. But if you but see, you actually start asking these questions, and guess what you got? Well, your, your audience has to listen to this. I, I guess I'm just—it's coming because coming from a place of being really curious when I when I you know got first uh, first taste of the Kool Aid, and and then looking reflecting on that and seeing I think that you know thinking well what, what and, and there's some criticism that I think there and you you've heard the criticism that it's it's gotten away from it's it's more yeah but let me just say something cranky I'm old enough to do that uh -huh. put up or shut up. <laughs> You know, the people are saying, oh, it's not based on behavior. Okay, put up or shut up. You create an analysis, methods, and data. You know, here I really get cranky because we've got people who say, oh, it's not data, it's not data, it's not data. And then when they come out with are these technical analyses that they've never evaluated, mm. they've never turned it into methods, they've never compared it. Mm -hmm. I don't have any patience with that at all, at all. And if you want to follow it, go, go follow it, <laughs> go. No, I, go. I, I, yeah, but I'm not know, following. I'm, I'm coming from this. You can talk behavioral ease doesn't mean the way you're talking is scientific. Yeah. yeah. You can use scientific terms to say non-scientific things. I gave you yeah. an example, Fred Skinner, the, one of the best behaviorists in the ever made a mistake with verbal stimulus that word stimulus he used incorrectly mm -hmm. it's wrong 
it's not behavioral. So I'm fine with criticism. Don't be hearing me to say that you have to talk, behave, act, speak. Mm -hmm. I don't like act, speak either. But I really worry about the appearances of technical precision being substituted for the facts of technical. Scientific precision means that you can link your concepts in a way that this phenomena has only a few ways of talking about it technically. Those ways of speaking apply to a range of phenomena that you know and ideally the broader the better because we can't and that it fits with what's going on to other levels of analysis of science that are well done. And all of that allows you to do what we came to do, which is what? Well, I don't know, you tell me. In the case of functional contextualism, it's being able to predict mm -hmm. and influence people's interactions in and with the one world, right? Their yeah. behavior, defined broadly, not just overt yeah. behavior, but all yeah. the different forms, feeling, remembering, thinking, sensing, and so forth. You know, the psychological flexibility course and the, the relational frame theory under it and the evolutionary science under it and the behavioral principles in it has done a pretty good job. And if people want to get more technical, more precise, I'm 100% down with that. But then I want to see the studies. If all it is, is that, you know, according to the Holy Writ, we only talk in technical. <laughs> no, that's not science. Okay. That's right. another form of religion. Yeah. You have to show me the data. Yeah. And you can't do this. Based on all the ACT data, we know it works. But I want to talk in this other way because it's more precise. I say, wait a minute. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Mm -hmm. Those ACT data were done using the terms you're saying I can't use now. So you have to start from the beginning. You don't get to both claim the 500 randomized trials on ACT or the 3000 studies on psychological flexibility and say all those middle level terms are BS and we just need to talk in this technical way. Mm -hmm. No, you're starting over. Mm. Not from <laughs> the beginning. I mean, you've got behavioral principles, you got, mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of concern about middle level terms and trying to drill that down to more basic analyses mm -hmm. in RFT or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I support that. In fact, because they're kind of seen as in a pejorative way. Yeah, they are sometimes, but really middle level terms could be pejorative. And sometimes in the world, it deserves to be pejorative. Okay. You know, we've talked about mentalism and just saying, oh, you should accept it. You know, like, uh, you know, like decontextualize these middle-level terms don't orient you towards the actual experiences and part of what we want to orient towards is the actual processes the the learning processes and language processes that this orients you towards and that takes a lot of basic science work etc you know and, and so clinical work sometimes has benefits from these concepts more basic science ones i'll give you an example you know, diffusion is not a technical term. Transformation stimulus functions is. Mm -hmm. How do we use techniques that allow us to transform the stimulus functions of relational networks in such a way that we can behave more flexibly with events that narrow down our repertoire and, and lead us to behave in ways that aren't good for us? Well, diffusion is a good way to talk about that. And, and does it require a technical account? Yes. Is there some? Yes, there is. You can, in the same way that you'd say, like, uh, you know, if if you shock somebody, they might aggress. You know, pain elicit aggression is well known. Mm -hmm. Aggression is not a technical term. There's no clear dividing lines between aggressive, non-aggressive, etc. Mm -hmm. But it orients you towards, yeah. You know, don't be given a lot of aversive events to people, or mm -hmm. you're going to get aggression back, mm -hmm. right? In the same way, uh, so. But I, I am frustrated by some things that are happening in the field where people are taking the appearance of a technical account without the data. Mm. And so when you, if you find psychological flexibility to be inadequate and act techniques to be inadequate, that's fine. But you now can't take all those data and just talk about them differently and say that what you're doing is evidence-based. You have to build out mm -hmm. from your RFT account or EvoSci account or whatever in a ways that we haven't done over here and then create the context in which that can be tested and compared and stuff. So 
let all flowers bloom, but let's hold them to account. And the account I would say that people out there should hold it to is evidence that these methods produce positive outcomes for people and the processes by which them produce, produce them is sufficiently understood that we know how to get from here to there with you as an individual, not just one size fits all. Here's the mm -hmm. protocol, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. If you have those two things, man, I'm with you no matter how you talk about it. But uh, just doing behavioral ease and techno speak, it's not a substitute. Okay. You're going to have to lift the heavy lift of data. And, uh, you know, ACT is not perfect in that, but it's not like it's data free. Mm -hmm. Part of also what I, I, I was trying to convey with, with my comment too was just how much I've come to appreciate that if, if I would have heard you talk like you have been talking to me for the last hour when I went to my first boot camp, I wouldn't have understand what the hell you were talking sure, about. Sure, of course. And I wouldn't, <laughs> have, I wouldn't have, you know, gotten into act. You know? Understand what this means. The people yeah. listening to your podcast would be going, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's That's our podcast awesome. now, Steve. So, so I just, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't remember why I was wanting to share that appreciation. Well, know. can I fill in why, maybe why? Yeah. Can I tell you a story to explain why? Please. So I was in England some years ago, and this was when ACT was first thundering into cognitive behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. And a person who was in charge of the NICE guidelines, uh, it's an acronym that stands for the government deciding what's evidence-based, mm -hmm. came and wanted to talk after a, a boot camp at the, in the evening session about basically why ACT is BS, okay? So we invited, okay. come yeah. on down, yeah, let's, yeah. Just, let's have fun. <laughs> and um, so we had this very nice session and it was, it was an alternative session. People didn't have to show up. They didn't get any continuing education credits, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And of the 150 people there, like 140 showed up at seven at night. A, he's stunned by that. Mm -hmm. B, he's thinking, these are cultists. These are folks who, you know, believe that they're going to ascend to the moon because the, you know, the dear leader said, you know, something. Mm -hmm. So he's having a little interaction with me and a little argument with me and then a little discussion with the audience. And then he says to somebody, he says, I don't understand it. Why are you even here, number one? And what do you see in the act that you wouldn't get from traditional CBT. We've got the evidence. We've got the data. We know that it treats these syndromes. What? So he says it with an edge, but you know, it's a good question. Mm -hmm. Somebody raises their hand, stands up, says, I'm a practicing clinician in the NHS, you know, and talks about where she works. He says, I'd like to answer that question. Hmm. He says, great. Why? Why are you even interested in this? And she said, because it allows me to be a complete psychologist. Because not only can I work with emotions, thoughts, etc., but if so, I want to deal with basic principles and why, there's a, a wing there that's trying to work that out. If I want to talk about philosophy of science and assumptions, there's a wing there trying to work that out. If I want to talk about what this has to do with biology or how we would extend this into the culture, there's a wing there trying to work this up. And he was speechless. He didn't know what to say. Hmm. Because this tradition, you know, has taken processes seriously from the beginning. I mean, Rob Zettel's first study, we did a mediational analysis on it. And that's out of a study that was done before the word mediational analysis even existed. Hmm. You know, we were looking forward to the day when philosophy of science, basic principles, extending these principles into a larger set of, I mean, I'm not saying all of the details were worked out and mm -hmm. I'm not saying I knew we were gonna bind with evolution science in the way we did or that RFT would come out the way it did or some of this stuff was too early. But I did, not just me, excuse me for talking about it that way, act as part of a tradition 
that cares about those things. Can I go back to Skinner? You know, <laughs> from rats to Walden too, is the way I usually said it. And the reason I'm a behaviorist is because of Walden too. Hmm. Who, would, who would run rats and then write a utopian novel? What lunatic would do that? Well, the kind of person who was more like Maslow in some ways than he was like mm. the cartoon versions of behaviorists. Now, how do mm. we get at peak experiences, relationships? How do we raise our kids? How do we get love in the world? Mm -hmm. How do we rein in universal control, et cetera? So there's a, people don't realize that there's a radically pragmatic behavioral wing that from the beginning has been interested in process and experience it's in the deep background of Gestalt therapy, help mate, create it. Mm -hmm. It's in the deep background of lots of the important things that you look in the world, this kind of uh, socially focused, responsible forms of science. Well, we're out of a wing that tried to hold even its rats, the rat work to account for that. You know, Skinner said, I'm not interested in animal behavior, mm -hmm. except that it helps me understand mm -hmm. complexity. The big so, animals, the walking animals. Yeah, exactly. So there's some kind of cool about being able to come in and talk clinically if we want mm -hmm. to. And then if you ask questions like the ones you did, that led to these long rants, <laughs> <laughs> we can do that too. Yeah. You want to talk radical behaviors and we can do it. You want to talk about basic principles, we can do it. And not that it's finished, and but just that we can play together okay. in that way and be the whole behavioral scientists and practitioners that we are meant to be by the culture and by our intellectual and disciplinary traditions. And not in a ontological way. Yes, not in an ontological way, but in an effective okay. and functional way. That's it for part one of Steve Hayes. Uh, stay tuned for part two. Thank you.